In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece that has a golden thread of music woven throughout. It's one couple's soundtrack that has accompanied them on life's ups and downs. When we set out to write our life stories, it's hard to know where to begin. In my writing workshops, I suggest anchoring yourself with the details of a scene and building your story one scene at a time. This helps writers in putting one foot in front of the other, so to speak, to write one bit at a time. This is very helpful when memories are elusive as well. Begin with small details and see them in your mind's eye. Anise Nin says we write to taste life twice. I love this so much. As writers, we get to actually travel back through time and slow everything way down. We get to look around and see how it looked, felt, tasted, sounded. We get to relive conversations over again, dialing up the volume on this part, turning that part way down. We can say the things we meant to say or hear what was said in a new way. And we can also just rewind and play our favorite scenes over and over to tease out the greater meaning they've had on our life at large. My guest today is Anne Camden. Anne is a mother of twin teenage girls, married to her college sweetheart, Jeff, living in Raleigh, North Carolina. She began her relationship with cancer in 2009 with invasive ductal carcinoma in her right breast. In May 2016, Anne was diagnosed with a second primary cancer, this time lobular, in her left breast, along with pericardial effusion, and the cancer had also spread to her bones. Now at 51, she's been diagnosed with leptomeningeal, meningeal, and you're going to have to help me on that one. Leptomeningeal. There you go. That's fluid of the brain and spine and many other organs. She's currently undergoing aggressive treatment. For many years, Anne says, she lived life in a state of denial that anything was wrong, but now spends most of her time napping, quilting, and writing the stories of her life. Before I turn it over to Anne, let me let you know that she is here to read a piece she wrote for Wildfire Magazine's Love and Intimacy issue. This was an issue in which we explored all the ways that our cancer diagnosis and life thereafter affected the ones we love too. Anne's story is called Writing Shotgun, and in case this is a term that you're unfamiliar with, it is steeped in American Wild West history, dating back to 1905. Writing shotgun was used to describe the bodyguard who rode alongside a stagecoach driver, typically armed with a break action shotgun called a coach gun to ward off bandits and other hostile individuals. 
Nowadays, it refers to the practice of sitting alongside the driver in a moving vehicle. It's a coveted seat, and people often yell shotgun as a way of claiming the right to ride up front beside the driver. Anne's story is about riding shotgun as her husband drives, but it's so much more than that, as you'll soon see. There are celebrations and heartbreak, big questions, mundane errands, and through it all, a beautiful soundtrack. Welcome to The Burn, Anne. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Well, I am about to turn the mic over to you and everyone um, stay tuned till after Anne's story for our discussion and um, a writing prompt inspired by today's chat as well. All right, Anne, I'll let you take it away. Great. Thank you. Riding shotgun. Confession. I love riding shotgun with my left hand on the top of Jeff's right thigh. He's driving and I'm calling out directions and selecting the soundtrack to punctuate both mundane errands and worldly adventures. In most facets of my life, I want to be wholly in charge. But in our truck, I cherish the opportunity to alternate my left hand between his thigh and the stereo while I shrug off the responsibility for getting us there and focus on finding lyrics that articulate our lives in ways that we can't. A few years into my terminal diagnosis, my husband very thoughtfully offered me the option to buy, quote, the car of my dreams. And it took me a few days of introspection to realize that the car of my dreams is the passenger seat of his pickup truck, as it was in the beginning and always will be until the end of our relationship. When we were dating, Jeff's white truck from the farm had a bench seat and dents in the door. His arms would rest on the back of the seat and I would slide into his shoulder as we sang along to the collections of meatloaf, Guns and Roses, and George Strait cassette tapes from the glove box. We cuddled and made out before he dropped me off at my apartment across campus. There was strength in his arms as he held me, and I couldn't get enough. The thumping and beat of the music teased at budding sexual desires. As we exchanged stories about our families and explored our desires for life after college, I would steal a glimpse of his distinct profile from the corner of my eye, his jet black hair and bushy eyebrows rested high above the set of well-defined cheekbones, and I couldn't imagine life without him by my side. It was after a weekend visit to my Chicago apartment as he headed south on I-65 that he heard Casey Kasem read my letter as part of the long-distance dedication portion of his show. I dedicated somewhere out there to offer us a bit of comfort over our long-distance romance knowing that we were both staring up at the same stars. Despite the cold, lonely winter and the cheesiness of the tune, it warmed me up to know that he was listening to the same song under the same stars just 150 miles away. I was grasping for ways to stay connected and when we were living very different lives. Jeff drove that same truck to the outskirts of Chicago on Valentine's Day in 1994. It was ridiculously cold and not terribly romantic as our noses drizzled on our scarves and jackets. Yet he dropped to one knee. I said yes, and we climbed back into the warmth of that truck. I was his brown-eyed girl by Van Morrison, and we sang along every time it came on the radio. It still makes me feel like I've been transported back to wearing his college sweatshirt and crazy in love. And now on our drives, my left hand boasted a shiny teardrop diamond when it rested on his Levi's 501 jeans. 
After the wedding, we relocated to the south in a green Ford F-150 with an extended cab that we bought from his dad. Too fancy for a couple of kids just starting out. The truck had a CD player and a sunroof, but it also had a big console that kept us apart physically. We held hands across the chasm as we learned the lyrics to Carolina Girls by local favorite chairman of the board. And we drove for hours trying to decipher the meaning of If I Had a Boat by Lyle Lovett and discussing what color pony it might be. Our music choices were light and bubbled out absurd dreamlike scenarios. In the confines of his truck, we escaped from our starter home and explored the mountains, the beach, and the cities in between. For our summer vacation in 2001, we packed it with kayaks, bikes, and a case of wine and headed to the Smoky Mountains as we sorted out our desires for a family in the future. For me, conversation comes easiest when I'm in the passenger seat and no one expects you to maintain eye contact. Without any distractions, it was easy to slowly unpack the issues that were weighing on us the most. And I could stare out the window when the tears were rolling down my face as we pivoted to southern bluegrass and old hymns. I was sure he couldn't see my pain. During that winter, we drove back and forth to the fertility clinic so much that we earned a reserve parking space along the front of the building. It was when Allison Krause's love song, When You Say Nothing at All, that assured me that Jeff was there to catch me as we faced years of disappointment. There were always Kleenex in the car to wipe away our tears. He held the door open for me after one milestone appointment, and I noticed that a few gray hairs had invaded his sideburns and a couple of random happy tears raced down his cheek as we prepared both physically and emotionally to become parents. By the end of pregnancy, I was 48 inches around the middle and could barely launch myself into the truck without his hand lifting me up on my butt. We upgraded to a lariat with a full back seat and a four-wheel drive for driving on the beach. With less hair to protect his head, Jeff pulled a ball cap over his salt and pepper hair and cruised our twin girls along the interstate to lull them to sleep listening to Peter and the Wolf, a Russian children's opera. Their car seats jammed against each other as they kicked the back of our seats as they belted out the wheels on the bus. We were all in on makeshift karaoke. In the coziness of the truck, the girls learned to talk, and our conversations evolved to discussing current events at school, studying for homework before practice, and grabbing a milkshake to celebrate an accomplishment on the ball field or in the classroom. When we hired sitters, we'd drive by the house after dinner, and if the lights were still on, we'd drive out of town to the lake and sit in a parking lot, just watching the stars and talking with the lights of the dashboard illuminating our faces, way more romantic than candles. As we eased into our 40s, we'd flirt and sing along to our favorite mashup all summer long by Kid Rock while reminiscing about our romantic adventures and working ourselves up into a verbal foreplay. Other nights, we'd feel our age and wrinkles and sing poignant tunes and another local favorite, the Abbott Brothers. Ironically, If I Get Murdered in the City became a favorite until it felt like foreshadowing. The lyrics, If I Get Murdered in the City... Go read the letter in my desk. Don't worry with all my belongings, but pay attention to the list. Make sure my sister knows I loved her. Make sure my mother knows the same. And always remember, there is nothing worth sharing like the love that lets us share our name. Shortly after my terminal diagnosis, Jeff offered to upgrade my sedan for the car of my dreams. 
And after two or three test drives, it occurred to me that my favorite car is the passenger seat of his truck, just like it was in the beginning when we were dating. We selected a top-of-the-line dark blue Ford F-150. Color didn't matter. I just wanted to be in the passenger seat while Jeff drives us on mundane errands and exciting adventures. Our first task was to sync our phones and playlists to DJ our adventures, even if the volume is a little quieter these days and it's often Christian rock. I can barely reach his soft-faded Levi's across the giant cabinet between our temperature-controlled bucket seats, but I still love to study his profile as he navigates us from adventure to adventure. His hair is gray, and my hand is swollen from treatments so that I can barely wear my diamond ring. It is the place that pulls us together, more than our kitchen table, our couch, or even our queen-size bed. We are most connected when we are riding down the road, reaching across the console to hold hands, singing words that we can't speak. Once my hair started to grow back and the nausea was better, in the green shadows of the dashboard, I asked Jeff, if you knew that I'd be terminal by 45, would you still marry me? I pretended I was watching out the window, but I could see his reflection in the darkness. The muscles in my neck and arms were imprisoned by stress, and it hurt to turn toward him. Truthfully, I wasn't sure how I would answer if the roles were reversed. Jeff reached across the gap to grasp my swollen hand and reassured me that he'd ask again, without hesitation. And I have never felt so loved and grateful for my husband. I could feel his love radiate through my body as I acknowledged his response with a deep kiss. Cancer is rough on marriage, and I'm not sure I'll ever have the courage to ask him again. We still have a lot of ground to cover as we prepared for what cancer adventures lie ahead. For now, it's rides to monthly shots, quarterly scans, and whatever else lands me back in the matrix of healthcare. Eventually, I'll want his help to build my final playlist with Jeff on my left in the driver's seat and me in the passenger seat, even if we're just sitting in the driveway, too tired to go anywhere. My heart breaks for this season when Jeff will turn on his radio and hear, Will the circle be unbroken? It might be Johnny Cash or Greg Allman or Ralph Stanley, and the passenger seat will be empty. And I hope he cranks the volume hard to the right, reaches for where my hand should be, and sings loud and off-key, knowing that I'm at my better home awaiting in the sky. There's a certain level of intimacy that comes from riding in close quarters. Maybe it's the focus on moving forward combined with the glow of the dashboard and constantly changing shadows. But somehow, that small space strips away distractions and allows us to settle into a place of vulnerability with nowhere to escape from ourselves. I suspect there will be a day that Jeff is going to find someone else to ride shotgun for adventures, and that's okay. After all, as Kip Moore sings, there's something about a truck. There's something about a truck indeed. That was beautiful, Anne. Thank you so much for reading your story, a big story. So we will take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will hear an update from you and get into some of the writing aspects. All right, let's take a quick break. Hi, my name is Tawny Michelle. I'm from Austin, Texas, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 39. In the wildfire writing workshop, April took me to places in my memory I thought I had lost the key to. 
April's great at making you feel comfortable and having this live class also allowed me to connect and share with others. As a parent of young kids, your plate is already full with diapers, bedtime, preschool drop-offs, or getting food on the table. When you top it off with an unwelcome cancer diagnosis, that already full plate can simply overflow. Brightspot Network is here to help. We are a community of parents and primary caregivers with cancer who are also raising young kids. We're doing that difficult work of parenting and caregiving all while navigating a cancer diagnosis and treatment. Brightspot Network offers free kids books on big emotions, cancer, grief, and loss. Free art boxes designed with kids of parents with cancer in mind. Financial grants for families impacted by cancer. Support groups for parents and partners, web resources, and more. Check us out at www.brightspotnetwork.org. Thank you so much for the support, both to Tawny for her testimonial and to our sponsors at Bright Spot Network for their support of this episode. Please check them out. Their link is in the show notes. And let me turn back to you now. So again, thank you so much for such a powerful story uh, about riding shotgun, but truly about life. Really. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Yes, absolutely. So you wrote this piece a while ago now. So I think we should probably start with kind of how it landed for you to read now. And um, maybe you can bring us up to speed if you feel comfortable. Yeah, that's a great question. It has been several years. And, um, you know, in so many ways, the, the cab of that truck is still like the a sacred space for us, especially during COVID. You know, we've spent a lot of time on little road trips here and there um, from the house. And that's just been a way to maybe unite the four of us and back into a little pod. Um, so that's been really exciting. And I think, you know, music is still such an important part of that, especially as live music was stripped away during COVID. And we are not musicians at all, obviously, but um, just big fans. and you know, to not have that outlet, that, that's been a huge loss. And so I think that, you know, riding along in the truck and still being able to sing our little songs and have our favorites, um, and now our kids are DJing, um, and they have some amazing tunes. I think that that's been really fun. And then do you want to hear from a health perspective as well? If you're comfortable with that, it's up to you. Yeah. And then... You know, also during COVID, I think fighting cancer has become so much harder and more isolating. So um, we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of progression during the last two years. So I think we've spent a lot more time just going to different doctors, different treatments as we've tried to get ahead of the cancer and different procedures. So um, spent a lot of time in that truck. Absolutely. Well, and I like... um... I mean, I don't like all the medicalness that has followed you in this truck or this truck has taken you to all this medicalness, but I like this idea of the two of you being in this truck together as different passengers, you know, your daughters, et cetera, kind of come and go in the constant stays, you guys in that front seat. It's a really beautiful story. Um, 
Let's get to the music a little bit because I truly, really love this device for writing this story. It really anchors it and helps carry it along. And I'm curious if you recall writing it and how you decided to write it from that perspective. So I think it was kind of odd for me for writing. I I think that when you use pop culture references and music and so forth, you can kind of timestamp things in the different songs that were um, popular at different points during our relationship. That was kind of, um, once I settled on that, it, I almost wrote an outline of, you know, here's what was going on when, and we, here's the songs that we were listening to. And if we were to, you know, go back to making the mixtape back from the 80s. Um, these are some of the songs that we would probably pick out as our favorites. And so then it was easy to kind of put it all together, really in kind of a love letter for Jeff. Mm-hmm. Has he heard this story? Has he read this story? He has. He was uh, shocked. I think he probably came upstairs and said something about um, crying. Um, that There's definitely been a few stories that I've shared that have brought him to tears that it's easier sometimes to put on paper than it is to voice those, the, that love or that affection. Yes. Well, I'm thinking that it's such an interesting mirroring of that theme. You know, you're riding in the car, you don't have to make eye contact. You can have those harder conversations like you wrote about while, you know, you're looking ahead and no one's expecting, you know, it's almost like the conversations that happen in the car can stay in the car. You know, it's the safe place. Right. And then your story almost becomes that again, especially as you've used music to, you know, thread through and keep carrying us through the story. It almost again becomes this way of having the really hard conversation in a container that feels a little easier to carry and hold. No, that is absolutely incorrect. And I think, you know, as I look back on some of the biggest conversations of, of our lives, they've happened in the car. It's after you've left a doctor's office or after you've left um, sometimes the school, sometimes it was carpool. You know, it's some of those biggest conversations happen in the, that space of, of our vehicles. And, um, and I think that that's what makes it so sacred. Absolutely. Well, and I love your realization that that, that is your, it's your dream car. It's your dream spot. It's your spot right there beside him. And I feel like, and again, please tell me if you don't, you know, if I'm getting too personal. Um, but you know, I feel like your, your story is illustrated by, by the music, by the car. But I think the greater question you're asking is, is Jeff going to be okay? You know, what, what's going to happen with Jeff? Um, is there anything you want to say about that? No, I think that that's, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that that's, as we get these diagnoses, especially when you get a metastatic diagnosis, you know, your first thought isn't for yourself. It's for those that you love. It's your spouse. It's your children. It's your parents. It's, you know, whatever those ripples are of the relationships around you, those that support you the most. And, you know, as I look toward my future and, and I've said this to Jeff and to, to many others, you know, he's my primary concern. I'm, I'm confident that my 18 year olds will, you know, take a hit and they will keep on going and they've got their whole lives laid out in front of him, in front of them. 
Whereas, you know, he's a 50 year old man who's kind of set in his ways and, and, and I think it's going to be really hard on him. Um, and I think that it's partly that age of all the things that are going on around him. Um, you know, he's looking at the mortality of his wife, at his children going off to school, at his parents' own health. You know, that's, that's that sandwich generation that, you know, I'd read so much about, but suddenly it seems like it's smacking us in the face every day. And um, so that's just the reality of what we're living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, you know, cancer is hard on a marriage. A, a marriage really takes a hit. And for us diagnosed way beyond before, rather, we were ever expecting to be dealing with cancer. It's I don't, I don't know if you're ever prepared, but it's just this like special layer of not fair that, you know, you have to deal with this at this other time. Yeah. Has writing helped, helped you deal with this in terms of your marriage, would you say? Oh, I think that writing has probably saved my marriage many times, even when I've written about things that are awkward or uncomfortable or maybe I was ready to be vulnerable on paper, but not um, in a discussion yet, because I feel like, you know, there's writing that you do for my personal journaling and thought process. And, you know, you're able to, to work through things there. And then there's also being able to, you know, like what wildfire has done for so many of us is to, is to allow us to be seen, to give us a space, to have a voice and to be able to share that story, our own personal stories in ways that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago were not available to us. And I think that that's just so powerful. Um, the amount of time that I spend with a pen is probably, pen and paper is probably um, time well spent, well invested in my relationship, even if I'm sitting on the couch by myself. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It's, um, I don't know who said this, um, or if it's even necessarily fully true, but it's a pretty great accessible form of therapy, pretty cheap. You know, you can just work it out. Right. Um, but you know, I want to just come back to something you were just, or I don't know if you were saying it or I was thinking it, but just this idea of writing as legacy as well, you know, you're working it out on the page, but you're also getting to, kind of control the narrative. And, you know, I'm thinking about your girls and I'm thinking about Jeff, but you're getting to decide the stories and the memories that you're leaving for them as well. Is there, is this an aspect of the writing that you're doing these days? Absolutely. I think that legacy writing has been really um, probably one of my passions since I was diagnosed metastatic in 2016. And one of the first things I did was come home and write out, you know, just chicken scratched out a list of here's the 25 stories I want to make sure my kids know. And, you know, some of them were cancer related. Some of them were family related. Some of them were things about college, you know, that were just kind of random that maybe they're not ready to hear yet, but to be able to put it on paper so that one day they'll have those files or access to that. I think that that's been really um, therapeutic and maybe has given me back a little bit of control in a situation where you have so little. 
And I think that that's been really important. Um, and I hope that one day that they'll see it as a gift, that there's all of this background. Oh, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. Um, but I also love the idea of purpose behind that. I think that's something that we all want, you know, and, and cancer has a way of whittling down that sense of purpose. So then turning it to cataloging, organizing, you know, sharing stories. And I love that prompt, you know, 25 things, 25 stories, you know, that they need to have. Um, it's beautiful. Anne. thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks. Well, I, um, Unfortunately, our time is running short, but I do want people to be able to read more from you. I believe you have a blog. Is there a place people can find you online? I do. I have a blog. Um, it's called down-not-out. So it's down-not-out.com. And um, yeah, I try and update that every three or four weeks or so. Wonderful. We'll link to that. And um, are you... Do you mind if we link to your social media as well? No, you're absolutely welcome to do that. It's uh, Camden Girls on Instagram. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And my guest today was Ann Camden. Her piece was called Riding Shotgun from the August, September 2019 issue of Wildfire Magazine called Love and Intimacy. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay till the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 35 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. All right, here is today's writing prompt. I was inspired by Anne's story of writing in the car, and so I want you to write about a car trip you will never forget. A car trip you'll never forget. Set the scene, where were you? Who was there with you? When did it happen? Why were you there? Think about those little details. Were there snacks? What music was playing? What was the subtext of the car ride? Begin to build your story for the, from there. But don't just tell the story. Show us what happened through the details. Reveal the inner landscape of your thoughts and feelings. Set your timer for eight minutes. Write without stopping. See what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>